Well, I think many of you may already know that as a young boy, I was raised on the kind of the liberal side of Lutheranism. Our family would go to church most Sundays, and uh, like any good Lutheran family would do, they'd get their kids to Sunday school, and I went through catechism. I was confirmed at the appropriate age, and our family lived that type of life. Sundays is where you went to church. And it wasn't entirely bad. I did learn the Ten Commandments. There were seeds that were sown through this period. But in that particular branch of Lutheranism, we were never taught about the certainty of biblical truth or doctrines. Really, at that time, I didn't even know what doctrine was. For instance, when I'd ask a pastor whether Jesus really healed a blind man or not, the typical response would be, we don't really know. That may have been actually just a spiritual idea in Scripture that where we're taught that Jesus enlightens us. That uh, he gives us ideas on how to uh, live a life that's more pleasing to God and, and uh, live a life that is more edifying to us and one another. And that would represent then the opening of our eyes as far as healing the blind. That was the perception they had of Scripture. As you might expect, a lot of their doctrines existed in very gray areas. Most preferred not to declare one way or another the ramifications of Jesus' ministry or his words. Of course, this practice of living in the shadows of Christianity kind of permeated all of those other doctrines that they held. A lot of things they just didn't really know for certain how they applied. Is Sunday still a Sabbath? If so, how did it get changed for Saturday? What about the dietary restrictions? Do they apply? If they do, which ones? Nobody really knew. And it was hard to get, I'll have to admit, it was hard to get a consistent answer. The questions would get even more complex during the season of Lent. Of course, Catholics couldn't have meat on Fridays. So the schools would serve fish. So was it all right then for a Lutheran boy to go home and have a cheeseburger at the end of the day? Are we under the Old Testament law? If so, which ones? Many traditions and denominations exist almost entirely in these shadows of uncertainty. Some teach it's almost impossible to know anything for sure. Is that why Jesus gave us his word? Did we get God's holy word so that we could wonder about whether we are to practice certain things and not other things? Or did Jesus come to clarify exactly where we stand concerning such issues? That's a question that scripture will answer today. Where exactly do Christians stand in a practical sense, concerning the Sabbath, dietary restrictions, or even animal sacrifice. Do we practice them to please God? Can we practice them? Or is it just a matter of conscience and everybody does what they feel like doing? My goal today is to help you step out of these shadows of doubt so that you can live in victory for Christ. Last Sunday, the Apostle Paul left us with a very clear proposition. We're no longer under the law. 
the Mosaic law presented each of us with a debt that no one could pay. Because no one ever kept it. When you look at Israel, can you find anyone that you remember that was able to keep the law? Maybe one. Jesus. How about the others? What about Isaiah? Was Isaiah the prophet, the great prophet of old? Was he a keeper of the law? He described himself as a man of unclean lips. What about Moses? Did he perfectly keep it? He was the one that the law was given to at Sinai. He is pretty close to that. He's prevented from entering the promised land due to disobedience. How about the great King David? Now there was a man after God's own heart. Did he keep the law perfectly? No. He committed adultery and then conspired to murder Bathsheba's husband. The Bible doesn't provide us with a whole bunch of examples of perfect individuals who kept God's law. What it does provide us is a whole bunch of role models who realized they couldn't keep it, yet responded to God in faith. Last Sunday, this is what we learned concerning the law. The law was a tutor exposing our unrighteousness so we could turn to God in repentance and seek mercy. Galatians 3.23 said, Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. We're no longer under the tutorage of the law. Colossians 2.14, where we left off last week, and where I'll ask you to turn now, says that God has taken away the obligation of keeping the law. And he nailed it to the cross. So what are the practical results of being freed from the legal requirements of the law? What is our response as Christians who are granted liberty in Christ? Paul provides us the answer. Our response is that we no longer allow ourselves to be subjected to it. Verse 16 says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. These articles represent requirements of the Mosaic Law. They were components for which these Christians in Colossae Colossae were being judged and ridiculed because of their refusal to practice them. It's not that the ordinances in the Mosaic Law were bad. These ordinances actually were very good. They were ordained by God. It's also that the law didn't simply expire for New Testament believers. It isn't that God changed his mind about whether the law should be kept or obeyed. And he certainly didn't just decide that I'm going to do something different now. No, the fact of the matter is that the law has been fulfilled. The law has been satisfied. Christ said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I came not to abolish, but to fulfill. 
The law has been fulfilled by the perfect obedience of the Messiah. How? He kept it perfectly. Every dietary restriction, every sacrifice, every rule, every Sabbath, at least in the manner in which God intended the Sabbath to be kept. Jesus kept the law, and you and I haven't. The law has been fulfilled. And the law only gets fulfilled one time. It's satisfied once and for all. It isn't that Christ is going to come back again at some point at a, another time and fulfill the law again. You and I, who are still prone to disobey because of our flesh, are in no condition to attempt to fulfill the law. Jesus says, it is finished. Once and done. So it isn't that the law was bad, it's that the law had been mastered. And now because of that, our relationship with God has changed. We receive our newfound relationship to God by faith in his Son, who kept the law for us. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Remind you of last week, circumcision of the heart. We cry, Abba, Father, it says. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir through God. Again, we see when we exercise faith, God sent forth the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts. And by that act, act adopted us and identified us as his very own children. By trusting in Christ, the actual law keeper, we are reconciled to God our Father, and we who were once not his children become his children, and not by keeping the law. We are his children through faith in his true Son who kept the law. We find our righteousness entirely in Jesus Christ through faith, and that's nothing new. That's exactly how Abraham received his righteousness. If you remember back in Genesis 15, verse 6, it said that Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. This righteousness by faith is nothing new. There's always been two groups of people. You have the redeemed, who are the ones that understand that by nature we're sinners, we know there's no way that we can be good enough to satisfy God. And then you have the unbelievers who think they are righteous enough to do it through keeping rules. We read about these in Scripture. And they're identified as the sheep and the goats. One of the clearest examples of the contrast between sheep and goats is provided by Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 18, Christ contrasts the religious Pharisee and a tax collector. The parable goes like this. And Jesus also told this parable to some who were trusting in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed, and they viewed others with contempt. 
Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even this tax collector here. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all I get, he said. His attempt was to keep the law. But Jesus goes on. Goes on, he says, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, Jesus said. Now, from time to time, you'll hear some people say this concerning the parable. Oh, repentance was just a starting place for this tax collector. That's a good thing. But tomorrow when he wakes up, he's going to have to start obeying the law. He's going to have to keep, start keeping the Sabbath and heed all these dietary restrictions and begin fasting from time to time. That's about the most ridiculous thing that I've ever heard. That would imply that Jesus came to earth in order to turn tax collectors into Pharisees. Following the Mosaic law is not a formula for pleasing God. In fact, legalistic righteousness by following any set of religious codes is absolutely futile. This applies to Islam, Buddhism, or any religious code. False religion doesn't even, it doesn't even need to be organized. People formulate all kinds of religion. That's called self-made, self-made religion. Now, that will be discussed in a couple of weeks in verses 20 and 21. But right now, Paul is referring exclusively to the Mosaic Law. So what's the Mosaic Law for? Does it still have a purpose today? If we are freed from the law, does that mean we can do pretty much whatever we want? We were previously told that the law is a tutor to drive us to Christ. Is that it? Or do Christians just completely give up and ignore the law? In 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's giving counsel to a young pastor named Timothy. And Paul says this concerning the law. Starting in verse 5, it says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They didn't know what they were doing. Paul goes on and says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law was not made for a righteous person. The law was not made for people who are righteous through Christ. Well, what's it made for then? He goes on. But the law is made for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men, and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. 
Today the law serves to unbelievers, those who aren't righteous through Christ, as a vivid reminder that lawless and rebellious people are going to face a judgment. These people need to seek grace and restoration to God. That's what the law points to. You can't keep it. That's what the law says. No one's ever done it except one. It reminds people there's accountability for our actions. But it's not for those who are already righteous to observe. We don't live day to day by practicing and observing the law. So this passage, along with a number of others, have posed a problem. It has caused some people to assert then that since we're free from the law, and since we are forgiven by grace, that we can live however we want. We can persistently get drunk, cheat on our taxes, commit fornication and adultery, and still be saved by faith. This belief system has a name. It's called antinomianism. It's a Greek word from Greek literature that means it is anti, against, nomos, the law. These people are antinomian. They're against the law. Antinomianism doesn't hold water. And it can't be reconciled to Scripture. Admittedly, Paul just told us that the law was not made for a righteous person. But in the same breath, he provided a whole laundry list of sinful behaviors that he says are contrary to sound teaching. You see, being free from the law doesn't give us a license to sin. The Mosaic law and sin are not in any way synonymous or interchangeable. If you take one away, it doesn't mean you've removed the other. Sin still exists. Understanding this principle is a big part of stepping out of the shadow of the law. When you step out of the shadow of the law, you are stepping into the light of obedience to Christ. As you are born again, and the Spirit of God takes up residence in our hearts, when our hearts are circumcised, you receive an increased awareness and sensitivity to sin. Before I was a believer, I used to openly curse God's name. It wasn't that I didn't know it was bad. My conscience told me it was bad. God's laws told me it was bad. But it didn't bother me. When I became a believer and my heart was circumcised and God tore away this, this flesh and the Holy Spirit indwelt my heart, then I had a problem with it. This was one of the sins that I had almost immediate victory over in Christ was to no longer blaspheme. God had changed my heart. I had victory in this sin. I had victory over some other sins. I struggle with some sins still today. Everyone has struggles with sins. The problem is, the difference with Christians versus non-Christians Our sins bother us. They bother us. 
That's an evidence that Jesus Christ has come into your life, is that your sin bothers you. You see, the law, which was very good, was limited in ways. The main problem is that laws can't change a heart. If laws could change a heart, we wouldn't have our filled up prisons. Rules and laws can't change a heart. That's God's job. The Mosaic law was never intended to regenerate hearts. The Mosaic law was, however, an indication of much greater things that were right around the corner. Redemption, reconciliation, mercy, grace, the cross. The law pointed to all these things. You could say the law is a shadow of the magnificent things that were to come. You might ask, how is that? How is it a shadow? Back to our text in verse 16, it says, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or respect to a festival or new moon or even a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Shadows are indications of the substance of the presence of a genuine article. Here are some examples. The Sabbath day of rest. Exodus describes the Sabbath as a perpetual covenant with Israel. It was to be a day of rest. All week long as they worked and toiled, the Jews were supposed to look forward to the rest that was available on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was supposed to be a good thing. But through rigid enforcement and alterations to the Sabbath, the religious leaders had made the Sabbath into a dreadful thing. Man had added so much to the Sabbath requirements that it had become a burden to keep. So much so that by the time Jesus arrived on the scene... You couldn't appropriately attend to a sick or dying person on the Sabbath. Some people would let an injured person lie there. Now that is not what the Sabbath was supposed to be. That was not a shadow of Christ. The Sabbath was supposed to look like Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. We rest from our toil of trying to please God through our works. And we trust in Christ to have accomplished all of our works for us. The Sabbath rest for Israel was a shadow of the rest that would be realized in Christ. When repeatedly accused of breaking the Sabbath day, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Man had made himself Lord of the Sabbath by adding all kinds of extra regulations to it. He had seized control of it. Jesus says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. I would propose that if you're baptized into Christ's body, through faith, you also cannot violate the Sabbath. The command of the Sabbath day is the only one of the Ten Commandments that was not repeated in the New Testament. 
It has no formal application to the Christian other than we rest in Christ. Hebrews 4.6 says, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered Christ's rest has also himself rested from his works as God did from his. The Sabbath rest has been permanently transferred from Saturday to Jesus. So, is there still a modern application for the assembly of God's people? Yes, there is. It's by observing what is referred to by the Apostle John as the Lord's Day. Jesus rose on Sunday. It's the first day of the week. And every time that Jesus reappeared in Scripture and it's linked to a day of the week, it always says on the first day of the week, Jesus appeared. In Acts 20, verse 7, the Apostle Paul is gathered together with other saints and he's there to break bread. That means communion. And it's said to have happened on the first day of the week. That's Sunday. Hebrews says, don't forsake the assembly of the saints. The typical assembly of the saints has always been from the very beginning of the church on Sunday. But it's not the Sabbath day. And don't let anyone judge you, Paul says, or belittle you because of the day of the week that you decide to worship on. We worship on every day of the week. How about the dietary restrictions? Or for that matter, the feasts and the festivals. Dietary restrictions and the religious calendar were designed, at least in part, to separate and distinguish the Jews from the other cultures around them. Jews were not supposed to be assimilated into the pagan rituals of the Canaanites and others who surrounded them. The Jews are supposed to be set apart to worship God in very distinct ways. Set apart is the word that we call holy. Be holy as I am holy, the word says. There are ways to keep Jews separate. You can limit what they eat. You can limit where they can and where they cannot worship. You can limit who they can or cannot marry. It was absolutely essential that the Jews remained very distinct from the cultures around them. Why? There's a number of reasons why, but for the sake of time, let's just state one. The Messiah was prophesied to be born out of the Davidic lineage. He was going to be a descendant of King David. So preserving an identifiable genealogy was essential for the identification and recognition of the Messiah who was going to come. It was essential for the accurate fulfillment of prophecy. If the Jews were permitted to intermarry with non-Jews and eat whatever they wanted, and if they were able, allowed to dress however the pagans dressed, they would have soon 
quickly been assimilated into the cultures around them. It would have threatened the Davidic line. God wasn't going to let that happen. So he gave very strict guidelines to these people to preserve his nation of Israel. Now I won't pretend that I can go into detail about every Levitical ordinance and law and precept in under three minutes. It's very detailed stuff. But I can tell you that the dietary laws were never designed to make a person righteous. How do I know that? Jesus says so. We read that text earlier. Jesus had been debating the Pharisees concerning eating with ceremonially unclean hands. And he called the crowd to him again. Jesus began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside of the man which can go into him that will defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into a man from the outside cannot defile them? Because it does not go into the heart, but into the stomach. And it's eliminated. Seems pretty simple. And then it says, thus, he declared all foods clean. That was the end of the dietary restrictions. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, the fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Our problem is the heart. Doesn't it make sense then that the Apostle Paul last week in the text right before this talks to us in brief about the circumcision of the heart? What the real problem is before he goes into the fact that don't let, you, don't let anyone judge you by the Mosaic law? He says deal with the heart. That's exactly what Jesus is saying right here. The problem's the heart. It needs to be circumcised. Of course, Jesus said, food doesn't defile a man. Let's just take a moment. That doesn't mean we have to get stupid with our eating habits. Just because we aren't under dietary restrictions doesn't mean we have to be gluttons and, and eat every awful thing that exists out there. You can use wisdom. But we're not ceremonially unclean because we eat certain things. And we're not ceremonially clean before God's eyes for eating other things. These Jewish ceremonial laws were a shadow. Verse 17 says they are things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Again, a shadow is an image that an object of substance casts. We already talked about how the Sabbath rest was a shadow of the rest we find in Christ. The dietary restrictions and religious festivals were a shadow of how Christians separate themselves to worship only Christ and not intermingling our religions with others. 
the spotless lamb without blemish that was sacrificed on behalf of the family was a shadow of the perfect, sinless sacrifice that Jesus was going to be at his crucifixion. The scapegoat, if you remember that from Scripture. It was a shadow. There were two scapegoats. There were two goats. One was a scapegoat. And they were in Leviticus 16. And the priest would take one of the goats, and he'd cast lots to decide which one would be sacrificed and which one would be set free. So the one goat that the lot fell on to be the sacrifice would be offered as a sin offering and it would be killed. The other goat they would take, and the high priest would put his hands on the head of that goat, and he'd identify his sin with that goat. And then they'd have someone else take that goat outside, and he'd drive it off into the wilderness, never to be seen again. This was a shadow of how our sin is driven away, and that God remembers it no more when, you're in faith with, when you have faith in Christ. These are all shadows of what was going to come with Christ. All the Levitical laws, all the precepts and ordinances were a shadow. One helpful illustration might be this. If you've ever been to Washington and you've seen the Washington Monument, the tall pointed one, you might have seen it casting a shadow if you're walking through a street you can see this shadow that is being cast. And it's a magnificent shadow. And you can look and it's very tall and it has a point at the end. And you're looking at it, it's like, wow, that's really an impressive shadow. But as you turn around the corner of the building and you have an open view, you look up and you see the Washington Monument itself. That's the substance, that's the real thing. You kind of forget about the shadow, don't you? You're not really impressed with that impressive shadow when you see the substance that is a real thing. That's how it is with Christ and the law. The law was a shadow. It pointed to Christ. Christ is the real thing. Now we are concentrated on him. We don't any longer dwell in the shadows. We need to step out of the shadows. We need to embrace our liberty in Christ. As we said earlier, that doesn't mean we can just sin however we want. The New Testament is very clear on what is and what isn't sin. That's a whole separate situation from what is law. The other nine commandments of the ten, I told you that the Sabbath was not reiterated in the New Testament as far as being a day. It's in Christ. But the other nine were all repeated. Honor your father and your mother. Don't blaspheme. Don't have idols. We still have to avoid sin. It's a battle we face every day. But we need to step out of the shadows. In, in Matthew 11, listen to this. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Have you ever wondered what Jesus means about this yoke? What's he talking about concerning a yoke? For you young people here who haven't learned yet, the yoke was a really heavy wooden 
apparatus that they put over the neck of oxen. And the oxen would plow together with it. They would drag implements, farm implements, or they'd drag a heavy wagon. A yoke represented hard work. A yoke represented a really heavy burden to bear. In Acts 15, we hear about a yoke. The Jerusalem council is meeting. These are the believers, the apostles in Jerusalem. And they're talking about what was going to be required of the Gentiles. Are they going to have to be circumcised? Are we going to tell them to observe the law? Are we going to force them under our law? Some wanted to do that. And this is the the account in Acts chapter 15. It said, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up saying, It's necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. What else would you expect from Pharisees? The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believed. That was when he spoke to Cornelius. And God, who knows the heart, testifying to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did also to us Jews, and he made no distinction between us and the Gentiles, cleansing their hearts by faith. This is what Peter says. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. He finished saying, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way that also the Gentiles are. He said, you don't take that yoke that no one was able to bear, no one was able to handle, and then place it on the new church. It was a heavy yoke. It referred to the requirements of the law. Galatians chapter 5 says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision, this would be someone who's trying to follow the law instead of grace. And Paul picks up one component to make a point. Circumcision is the one that he decided to grab here. He could have grabbed any of them. Could have grabbed dietary restrictions or any of them. But he says, I testify to every man who receives circumcision, if you think that your righteousness comes through that, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ you who are seeking to be justified by the law. You have fallen from grace. That's serious. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You don't want to be under that yoke of slavery. That's being under the law. You don't want to be severed from Christ and his free forgiveness because you're trying to keep the law. It's a package deal. The law is a unit. You don't get to pick and choose. 
The law isn't Burger King. You don't get to have it your way. You don't get to go up to the high priest or your pastor and say, you know, this is a pretty good week. I think I'll take some of that Sabbath adherence and throw in with it maybe a fast or two because I'm feeling pretty good. Give me that this week. But next weekend, well, I've got my cousins. They're coming down from Shiloh, and they're Ephraimites. And, you know, Ephraimites, they get pretty crazy. So, you know, we're probably going to have a party over at our place this weekend. So um, could you order up for me one of those ceremonial cleansings next week? No. You don't get to choose a part here, a part there, however you feel. You either keep the entire thing like Christ did, the entire law, or you come through faith. Finish up with a story here. Um, my dad, who started exercising his faith later in life, and uh, just a couple years before he died, was uh, in the apartment, and dad would listen to a lot of... Uh, radio, some radio preaching, some good stuff. Then he'd watch the History Channel and get a little off track with that. And then I'd say, well, come on back now to the center here. That's a little messed up with some of the stuff that they put on TV has. But Dad, when I went over there one morning, I knew he'd been a believer. He'd seen the fruit. But he says to me this morning, he goes, you know what, today, 82-year-old man sitting there, today... I learned that there were two ways to heaven. And I'm like, oh boy. What do I need to correct now? And he looked at me and he smiled. And he said, either you can keep every aspect of the law and never sin your entire life, or you can trust in Jesus. I looked at him with a grin. I said, Dad, which one are you going to take? He said, I'll take Jesus. Let's all take Jesus. Will you pray with me? Lord, uh, it is a wonderful, marvelous thing, the law, how you orchestrated that, Lord, and how all of that points to the magnificence of Christ. How you foreshadowed all of these things to point us to your Son, to the Savior, Lord God. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for all of the, um, all of the impression you give, Lord, through all of this history where you've worked through people's lives, how you've redeemed people, how you've redeemed individuals from their sin by turning them to faith. When people realize, Lord God, that I just can't do it. I've been trying and trying and trying, and I just can't get to every level of achievement that I want. Lord, thank you for achieving everything. Thank you for living that sinless life that we haven't. Thank you for keeping every regulation and pleasing your Father perfectly. Lord, thank you for doing that because I know I couldn't have done it. Thank you for bestowing upon us through faith, Lord, that gift of salvation. We hear in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that by grace we've been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves, it's a free gift of God. Not the result of works, lest anyone should boast. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today 
that was relying upon their good works, that was relying upon what they were doing rather than what Christ is doing, who is relying on building that ladder to heaven, Lord, one rung at a time by meeting what they felt were your requirements, Lord. I pray that you would open their hearts today to the love and the forgiveness that comes in Jesus Christ. I pray all of this in the holy name of Jesus Christ. Amen.